Excellent. Let's speak to God. Our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we humbly draw into thy presence this night. And we thank thee that at the close of this day of conference that we have the great privilege, the remarkable opportunity again to sound forth the old, old story which is ever new. There are so many of us here tonight in this auditorium whose lives, whose hearts, whose minds, whose souls, and whose eternities have been totally changed because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have sung about a cross, and we have sung about a Savior. And Father, we are confident from thy word that the Lord Jesus Christ still longs to be the Savior of sinners, and the God of heaven still is long-suffering not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we have great confidence asking the our God to work in this meeting. We would pray to keep the enemy of souls away from this place. We would pray that the good seed of the word of God would find good ground. We think especially of the Christian's children who have heard this story so many, many times and are still not saved. And we realize, Father, from what we've even heard at the close of the last meeting that time is short. And we look all around us and we realize that the Lord's coming cannot be far away. So we would pray to put us all in earnest tonight. Help us to be tender and soft and real. And we would pray to bring the truths of Scripture alive to lost souls tonight. And we would ask thee, O God, to save in this meeting. We will give thee the glory. This will all be of thee. And we will bring honor and glory to our Savior's name as well. So we ask for help even in the reading of thy word. And as we would proclaim the gospel, Father, we need thee. We give thee thanks for salvation and for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, in his name. Amen. We're just going to read one verse, 1 Peter, chapter 3. And you already know what verse is going to be read. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. This is one of the greatest gospel verses in all of the Bible. There are a number of really good, complete gospel verses. Our mind, first of all, would go to John 3.16 that we all know so well. John 5 and 24 where Jesus said, Verily, verily I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall never come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Isaiah 53, there are numerous verses in that chapter. And I was thrilled at the hall last night to see behind the pulpit uh, those verses from 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel, Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised again the third day, according to the scriptures. But 1 Peter 3.18 is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. And with the help of God, we're going to look at it tonight. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just one for the unjust ones, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, or having died in a physical body, but made alive, quickened by the Spirit. We'll read it again. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just one for the unjust ones, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but quickened or made alive, brought to life by the Spirit. And God will bless to us the reading of his word. Four simple points I would like to leave with you tonight on this verse. We read Christ also has once suffered for sins. And we're going to look at and consider the pain of the sufferer. Then we read the just one for the unjust ones. And we're going to look at the purity of the substitute. The next phrase is that he might bring us to God. And that's the plan of salvation. And then finally, put to death in the flesh, but brought back to life by the Spirit. That's the proof of satisfaction. So first of all, we have discussed and read here that there was a sufferer who bore great pain. I would like to just try for a moment to discuss the agonies of the cross. Psalm 22 was written almost a thousand years before Calvary occurred. And in that psalm, there are at least 33 distinct allusions or references to death by crucifixion. Isaiah 53, and that was written 700 or 750 years before. Isaiah describes the crucifixion of God's perfect servant. And in those verses that are so well known to us, he uses the strongest words in the Hebrew language to describe physical suffering. The pain of the sufferer. I don't know whether you've thought about this, but the Lord Jesus lived through pain his entire life. That's why Isaiah calls him the man of sorrows. We mentioned that he suffered the pain of disbelief from the four other half-brothers that lived in that home. And he had sisters as well, and I don't know if they believed in him. But he was basically rejected by his siblings in the home in which he grew up. He suffered the pain of rejection by his own people. He came as a Jew to Jews. And he told the woman at the well in John 4, salvation is primarily for the Jews. But John tells us he came unto his own, his own things, because he owns this world. But his own people received him not. He suffered pain from his own people, the very ones for which he came. He suffered the pain of judgment by the religious hypocrites of the day who stood self-righteously at every turn and challenged his every word. They had long forgotten the time when a boy of 12 stood in the temple and confounded them with their answers. When he achieved manhood, young manhood, and he stepped out into his public ministry, they hated him. They challenged him at every turn. And every town he went, and they were watching and listening and judging, he suffered that pain. He suffered the pain of disloyalty of the very men that he chose. We were hearing of how he selectively chose young men to be his disciples. 
And at the end, we read, they all forsook him and fled. John was there, for the Lord Jesus gave John at the foot of the cross his mother Mary for his best friend to take care of. And I believe Peter was maybe on the outskirts of the crowd watching because he claimed to be a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He suffered throughout his days and his nights the pain of foreknowledge. He knew everything that was going to happen. I heard Gene Higgins once say that Paul was a courageous man. He said, I go to Jerusalem not knowing what things will befall me there. And then Gene said, the most courageous man that ever lived was the Lord Jesus because he went to Jerusalem knowing everything that would befall him there. The pain of sorrow. We mentioned that he wept at Lazarus' grave. One day he came face to face with a young man who probably looked perfectly normal, but who could not hear and he could not speak. And as he looked into the face of this dear young man, his soul, his heart sighed when he saw the effects of sin. One day he was looking down at the city of Jerusalem and his heart broke. He suffered the pain of a nation that turned away from him and he wept. He suffered the pain of a horrible physical beating. None of us here can explain what Isaiah meant when he said his visage was marred more than any man. Because of the internet and because we can pull up historical photographs from every era of man, we have been able to see some horribly disfigured people. And Isaiah says more than any man. I think of what Mark said. They called together the whole band of soldiers. Roman soldiers never were all together. They were always taking breaks or vacation or leave. But that day at the cross, they all came together. And these men all took turns walking up to this quiet Savior and brutalizing his face and then spitting in it. He suffered the pain of the nails and the thorns. Mr. Paisley stayed with us once years ago. And one night he said to me, Lynn, come here, I want to show you something. And Mr. Paisley was a big man. That's what he called himself. He was. And he had a number of big Bibles that he traveled with. And he opened his Bible and he turned to the back page. And there taped inside the cover from corner diagonal to corner in the back of his Bible was something that I had never seen in my life. He said, do you know what that is? I said, no, I don't. He said, take a good look at it and tell me what you think it is. I said, I've never seen anything like that in my life. He said, that's a Jerusalem thorn. He said, just imagine a hundred of them in a crown of thorns. It was a spike with an ugly point. And they beat that into the Savior's brow. He suffered the pain of the darkness 
of the cross. Our brethren, we're talking about context today. And it's so important to notice why Peter mentions the suffering of the Lord Jesus here. He was writing to dear Christians who were suffering. They had been scattered. And not only were they suffering pain at that time, they were going to suffer horrible pain. Peter called it a fiery trial at the hands of one of the most wicked men ever to live, a man named Nero. And I'm not going to go into detail. You can read it for yourself. But Nero was such a wicked man that he collected Christians and he impaled them and he put pitch on them and he set them aflame and he used them as torches to light up his garden parties. And Peter was writing to these people who were suffering and who were going to suffer much more greatly. And then he reminded of them, this man, Christ also, once suffered for sin. The pain of the darkness. None of us will ever know what happened in those three hours of darkness. God turned out the lights. The heavens grew quiet. The sun was gone. There was a chill on the hill. And those people who were sitting there watching him die experienced the cold of a spring morning. And the unnatural darkness of something they couldn't explain. And there alone, a man suffered. After he had gone through all of what I have mentioned, he suffered what none of us will ever know at the hands of a righteous God. And if you read in the Psalms about the waves and the billows and the deep and the water floods, And then you look at the end of Micah, where Micah the prophet says, God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God's sea was Calvary. And he thundered those waves and billows of his wrath against my sin on his son, who has become my savior. But in the darkness of the cross, the people sat there, quiet, Wondering. And there in the darkness, he suffered for sin. The pain of the sufferer. The purity of the substitute. God has taken great pains from the beginning of this book to the very end to show by illustration and by sacrifice and by object lessons and by examples. That the plan of salvation that he eternally had in mind would involve a pure, unblemished lamb. The command to the Israelites in Exodus at the Passover, your lamb must be without blemish. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 can say with such confidence... Christ, our sacrifice, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Gabriel, the archangel, he told a little maid one day, he said, Listen, that holy one that will be born of you will be the Son of God. No other woman has ever been told that by her obstetrician or doctor. 
But a heavenly messenger came to a little girl who never argued or who never said, this does not fit my plans. God had selected this dear young woman to bear the Son of God. And he said, he's going to be a holy child. The Lord Jesus talking to his disciples in John 14 says, I pray for you because the enemy is coming. He warned them of Satan coming. But he said, when he comes, he's not going to find anything in me. And what he meant by that was there was no sinful nature within the Lord Jesus Christ to respond to the attacks of Satan. That's why for 40 days and 40 nights, he was able, before he stepped out into public ministry, he was able to face Satan by himself and by his God and the power of the word of God. Satan had no control over him. Satan can dominate you and me. He had no control over this Savior. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.21? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The writer to the Hebrews. We don't know who it is. I'll just say Paul. He said this in chapter 4. He was in all points tested and tempted and tried like we are yet without sin. And chapter 7, verse 24, our high priest is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Peter says, we are redeemed by precious blood. It's the only blood in the Bible called precious blood. It's the only blood in the universe ever called precious blood. He was a lamb without blemish. That's external. He was a lamb without spot. That's internal. You and I can dress up nice. But inside, we're still sinners. Thank God, most of us are sinners saved by grace. But this Savior was pure within and without. And John finally said, in him there is no sin. Why is it so important that we have the purity of the substitute? Well, it's very simple. If the Lord Jesus had had one spot of sin, we wouldn't be here tonight. We would have no Savior. What is even more unexplainable is this. And the hymn writer wrote of it this way. Holy, holy, holy. Though the darkness hide thee. Though the eye of sinful man thy glories do not see. Only thou art holy, Lord God Almighty. Perfect in power, in love and purity. Here's the amazing thing about the purity of this substitute. When God dealt with him for three hours on the cross and he endured the wrath of God for me, my sin did not taint my Savior. My sin did not ruin him. It did not spoil him. It did not change him. He took care of my sin because he was pure. The next phrase is that he might bring us to God. You know, when two sides are apart in any kind of negotiations today, there is an arbitrator that comes in to try to bring both sides together. That is not what the Lord Jesus did. Because God never moved. God didn't change. 
He stayed as holy as he always was when men sinned in the garden. And when that sin, that one sin, and very briefly, by the way, the sin of Adam and Eve was different. Eve was tricked. She was beguiled by the serpent. But Adam chose to sin because he knew he would lose his wife if he didn't. And that's why, as the figurehead of the human race, the New Testament charges that sin to Adam. And because we're all related to him, we have all been infected by sin. But the Lord Jesus suffered as a perfect substitute so that he might bring us back to God. We were the ones who moved. And dear friend in the meeting tonight, if you're not saved, you have no idea how far away from God you are. You have no clue. And we hope and pray that tonight you will find out just how far away you are. I was raised in Bryn Mawr. And it was nothing back then to have 13 weeks of gospel meetings. And David and I, for a brief period of time, were in the same Sunday school class. We heard the best gospel preachers on the planet. And when I was 15... And God brought me to the point where I knew I needed to be saved. I could not get saved. I had, I had no idea. I was completely, hopelessly lost, having heard gospel all my life. But the design of Calvary, the design of God, this plan of salvation, is not to bring us together, but to bring us to God. God made the first move. I love the name Emmanuel, God with us. And God came to where we were. So let's just think for a minute of some of the unexplainable miracles that the God of the Old Testament did. We've heard these since we were kids, many of us in Sunday school. They're unexplainable to science. Nobody can come up with a reason for why these happened. A flood that covered the earth. And we still see signs of it today. A bush that not only burned without being consumed, but spoke. A Red Sea splitting in two with dry land. That was the first aquarium. As they walked through, they looked those walls of water. I wonder what they saw. A sky that rained fire. A woman that turned to salt because of disobedience. A 90-year-old woman gets pregnant with her 100-year-old husband. Huge walls of an enormous city, big enough to hold houses on top, they fell with only sound. The ground opening up to swallow into the pit those people who were offering strange sacrifice. A rock that produced water. A brass snake that healed everybody that looked. A donkey that talked. And a sun that stood still. These all happened. The word of God says it. This God of salvation is a miracle working God. But the greatest miracle that he ever designed was the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. God always saw a cross. As he looked into time, 
from eternity where he inhabits. He always saw a cross. You see, Calvary was not a reaction to the sin of man. Calvary was always God's plan. So he sent us a savior, a rescuer, because that's what it means to be saved. It means to be rescued. The radio preacher John MacArthur said this. He said, at the very heart of the redemptive teaching of the gospel is this glorious truth. The God of heaven sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on a search and rescue mission for lost sinners. That's what makes the gospel such good news. Most of you know I love gospel music. I think it's going to be the music of heaven. But I love some of the words that these people write. And here's one that I've loved ever since I first heard it. Once my soul was astray from the heavenly way. I was wretched and vile as could be. Then a savior in love brought me peace from above. When he reached down his hand for me. The Savior reached down for me. He had to reach way down for me. I was lost and undone. Without God or his son. Then he reached down his hand for me. You may have heard this story. A couple preachers have borrowed it. But I had a patient a number of years ago named Michelle Stewart. She was a farm wife. Her husband, Neil, had a farm. And I still take care of the kids. They're grown now with their own families. One cold March Sunday in western Pennsylvania, Michelle went shopping for groceries for the week. And as she got home, she carried her bags of groceries up the steps of their back deck. And as she got onto the deck, she did not apparently realize that there was a skim of frost on the deck. And she lost her footing, and the feet went out from under her, and she fell hard on her back and struck her head on the deck. Her husband, Neil, was asleep inside the house on the sofa 20 feet away. He finally woke up, looked at his watch, wondered where his wife was. The kids were away at friends' houses. And he realized she should have been back. And he looked out the window, and there was her Jeep. And he went to the back door, and there she lay. And she was dead. She had frozen to death, hypothermia. Struck her head enough to make her unconscious. And I was at her autopsy the next morning, and there was, it was negative, except for a tiny little bruise at the back of her brain. What did Michelle need that day? She needed a rescuer. And to this day, Neil still lives with that guilt, that he was not there for her. All she needed was someone to come to where she was and to scoop her up in strong arms and carry her inside where it was warm. And she would have been fine. And she's in eternity. Because she did not have a rescuer. 
But for you, dear friend, in the meeting tonight, who are here still in your sins, still facing the condemnation of God and the wrath of God for your sins, as you sit here guilty before God, the great joy of the gospel is God sent a rescuer for you. He reached down his hand from the heights of heaven and he did not just send anybody. He sent his only well-beloved son. And the Lord Jesus came as God's tremendous plan of salvation to rescue me. The only thing that I contributed to the death of the Lord Jesus and to my salvation was the sins that caused him to die. That's all I contributed to Calvary. And God took care of everything else. He sent his son to be the savior of the world. Finally, the proof of salvation. We read he was put to death in the flesh. That means he honestly, actually did die. But he was brought back to life by the spirit of God. I have a book in my library. I wouldn't suggest that you go out and try to find it. It was written by a French doctor, and it's called A Doctor at Calvary. And he describes in graphic detail what crucifixion was really like. I heard Jean again say once that nobody ever put a cross on a building or nobody ever wore a cross as jewelry who had ever seen a crucifixion. It was only after crucifixion had been eradicated and centuries had passed that they started using a cross for whatever reason. Driving here on Friday afternoon, I was stunned by how many white crosses I saw beside the road. We all know what they mean, right? There at that spot, someone suffered and died. That's what the cross means. And you remember that when the Savior was on the cross, in the end, they came by and they smashed the legs of the two thieves. And the reason for that was that a crucifixion victim continually pushed themselves up on that bottom spike just to get another breath. And this doctor, this French doctor, suggests that the Lord Jesus died as they did from asphyxiation. That's why I don't want you to go get the book. If you study carefully the Gospels, you will find that the last three, and maybe even the last four cries, were loud voice cries. They were from the depths of the lungs of a man who was not subject to death. The entire time he was on the cross, he was never dying because he chose the moment of his death. And he proved it by loud voice cries. And that's why it says that the centurion and they that were with him, when they saw how Jesus cried out, their hearts were broken. And they said, this of a truth, this man was the Son of God.
They didn't have to break his legs. But he really died and he was really buried. They, they, they wrapped him in grave clothes. They, they put spices on him. He was placed in a brand new tomb. Hewn out of a rock. They rolled a huge rock into the door. And then Pilate said, seal it and guard it. And there he was for parts of three days and three nights in the quiet of that tomb. He was not alone. Like the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies at the western end of the tabernacle, the mercy seat had a chariot bim. And John tells us that two angels sat guarding the Savior, one at the head and one at the foot. Those celestial beings that had been created by him sat guarding him in his death. Just think what it was like in that dark, cold, silent tomb. There came a moment that the man in the grave clothes stirred. And the angels beheld perhaps what they were longing to see. He left those clothes behind in perfect form and he stepped out of those garments. And I can just see the Savior, the kindness of this Savior, turning to those angels and saying, thank you for being here with me. And then he stepped out of the tomb right through the rock wall. He's alive. That was the message of the resurrection. Tell the disciples he's alive. So the fact that he came back to life, that's for me a guarantee of eternal life. That's for me a guarantee of heaven because he's the first man into heaven. And he has now paved the way for all of us to go by God's plan. It's a guarantee that he's coming back. Because he said, if I go, I'll come again. And I'll receive you unto myself. And if I pulled all the Christians here tonight, one by one, which I will not do, I would ask you, are you looking forward to the return of the Lord? And there are many that would very gladly say yes. There are others that would be a bit hesitant. Because they are the parents of children who are not yet saved. That's why this gospel meeting is so important tonight. This might be your last chance to trust Jesus. But the fact that the Savior rose again is also a guarantee of judgment. Because for any who say no to him and who walk past the cross, God has no choice but to punish you for your sins. I saw a bumper sticker in town on the back of a car once that said, God does not send people to hell. People send themselves to hell by refusing God's plan of salvation. So, dear friend, tonight in this meeting, if you're not saved, do you really want to be responsible for you ending up in the lake of fire forever? Do you? When such a plan has been effected and perfected. 
In these verses, in these, in these phrases, we have learned the great distance from God. God never moved, but we were far, far away in our sin. We learned the great distinction between God and man because we read the just for the unjust. What does that word mean? We could say it a number of ways. The sinless man died for the sinful. We could say the innocent man died for the guilty. We could say the perfect man died for the failures. And every one of us before God, naturally speaking, we are sinful, we are guilty, and we have failed God. But God sent a perfect substitute. And finally, the great deliverance that God has provided. I'm going to close with this. If you've not heard this story, I'm just going to close the meeting with it. On July 13, 1991, two men by the name of Gustavo Badillo and Eduardo Wallace, two young, healthy Venezuelan men, decided to do something that they had recently found a great attraction for, and that was cave diving. That is, putting on equipment and diving into the depths of water inside a cave. I don't, I don't do well in a dry cave. And these men went way up into the mountains of Venezuela and they put on their equipment and they went cave diving. Um, very quickly, they got separated and the ropes came off. And they completely lost their bearings. They were going to do a buddy dive and that plan quickly failed. Eduardo in a panic, made his way back to the entrance to the cave where there were friends waiting. But there was no sign of Gustavo. And I had mentioned that salvation is a rescue. Let me just tell you very briefly why salvation is a rescue. A rescue is a deadly and desperate situation where the victim is totally helpless and an outside force, an outside source of strength or power enters into the situation, inserts themselves at great risk, and for the victim, changes the outcome. That's what salvation is. Because into my lost, helpless estate, the Savior came. He reached down his hand for me. So Eduardo and the others, they were desperate. So what they did was they drove all the way back down the mountain to the city. And they told um, Gustavo's family, they were very wealthy. And they had heard of two men who were expert cave divers in Florida. Um, Steve Gerard and John Orlowski. And they called the men in desperation and one of them picked up the phone. And they said, can you come to Venezuela? We will charter a plane and pay your expenses. The men said, to Venezuela. So the plane was sent picked the men up with all their equipment. He had gotten lost on a Saturday evening. They landed at 5.30 in the morning. There was fog, so they couldn't get up with a helicopter. They had to drive by Jeep the whole way up. By the time they went into the water, Gustavo had been in there for 36 hours. And what had happened to him was that his light was out, his oxygen was out, and he found himself in a little vertical air chamber 
And very soon in that darkness, that air was going to go. And these men dove the cave with rescue equipment. To their amazement, one of them, and they were tied together, went into that same little air chamber and felt a leg that moved. And they pulled themselves up to find a man who was in shock, who actually thought that they were angels, that he had died, who had already given up completely, and they brought him to safety. The reason I tell you this is, And the details of the story are amazing. This is considered the greatest rescue in human history, in modern human history. I would like to close this meeting by telling you that that story is not the greatest rescue. The greatest rescue is every one of us here in this meeting tonight who have had a Savior come from glory to suffer all this pain, even though he was so pure, and to take my place on the cross and suffer at the hands of a righteous, holy God, what I should have paid for my sin. That is the greatest rescue in history. And that story is as valid and alive and real and true and joyous now as it was then. It will never grow old. It is what divides time. It is what will divide eternity, heaven and hell the eternal city in the lake of fire. And Revelation 5 tells us that there will come a day where people will gather around a throne and in the midst of the throne will be a man resembling a freshly slain lamb. And the people who are there will bow their knee and they will sing songs of praise unto him who loved us and washed us with his blood. That's the greatest rescue. Now tonight in this meeting, dear young friend, you could be saved. You will never get to heaven on your own. But the God of salvation has done absolutely everything you need. And tonight you can trust this Savior. This may be your last chance. So as we close this meeting, the Christians here would pray, would implore that you take this seriously and look to the cross and accept God's Son as your Savior. And God's promise is, tonight you'll be saved. Let's pray.